Paul. While you're turning there, let me uh, thank you for your prayers and tell you that uh, a marvelous transformation occurred a week ago yesterday. The gorilla became a gentle, gentle man. And he took the Stradivarius and went off to France to go rock climbing, if you can imagine such a thing. Thank you so much for your interest and your prayers. It was just a beautiful day. It was a glorious day. And um, we're, we're glad to be back. Um, so thanks. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, reading the first eight verses. Sometimes I quote G.K. Chesterton, and, and I've not read a whole lot of Chesterton's stuff, but when I read Chesterton, I think here is a guy who really got it. Chesterton had a you know, wonderfully witty and insightful way about him. One of the things Chesterton said so succinctly and pointedly is there are two ways to get home. And one of them is to stay there. One of them is never to leave. A great concern that many people have, that I have and many have for the church in America is that she has left home. She's left home. And the home that she has left in way too many places, tragically and sadly, and I say this, not to condemn, not to criticize, but simply because I want you to understand who we are trying to be as a church. One of the critical ways in which so much of the church has left home is by abandoning what is the church's greatest treasure, and that is the Word of God. And that appears to be what happened in subtle ways in Israel. Even though there was ethnicity that was valued, and even though there was a moral code that was valued, and even though there were religious practices that were valued, it seems that the church of that day had actually left the source of all of those things, which is the word of God, the words of God, the very speech of God given to the people of God for the well-being of the people of God. That's what Paul, I believe, is concerned about here. And I want to take two weeks, actually, to look at this, this week and next week, but it'll prove to be a great segue into the next season of the church year, which is Advent. And I hope that will become clear as we spend a couple of weeks actually just in these first two verses. So read with me chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. 
By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? This is just to put these first two verses in their context, but our focus is going to be on verses 1 and 2. Let's pray together. Lord, Thank you that you've not left us in darkness. You've not left us in darkness. You've not left us to our own resources, but you've spoken clearly. And in grace and mercy and kindness, you've preserved what you've spoken for us. May we be grateful today for this gift that you've given, we pray. Come and help us by your spirit as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we come to this third chapter, we come to a couple of questions. What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? And you you want to ask about these questions. Why are these questions there? Well, again, as you think back through what it is that Paul has been saying up to this point, beginning at verse 18, he's been concerned to communicate this this one very sobering truth. And it is a sobering thing. And it's a it's a thing that you really you just don't want to get too far away from, my friends. It, it you'd like to get far away from it, but you don't want to get too far away from it because if you get too far away from it, honestly the significance of what you see displayed behind me, the thing that is central in your sight of vision, in the room, as you get farther and farther away from this truth that Paul leads this letter with, this cross behind me diminishes in significance. It just does. The thing that Paul has been concerned to show us through this first part of this letter in chapters 1, beginning at verse 18, and through the end of chapter 2, is that the wrath of God is something real. The wrath of God, he says, is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. Wrath is God's holy revulsion. It is the holy revulsion of his soul in the direction of everything that is contrary to his character. That's where he begins this this gospel, he says, is good news. He begins with this, this wrath of God that's being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness among men. And again, you can never get too far away from this. What is behind it, what is behind this declaration of the wrath of God being revealed is is the God who is really there and the God who is righteous and a God who is just and a God who is holy. Paul doesn't set about to develop an argument for the character of God, he assumes it. And and that's an interesting thing. He doesn't set out to try to prove this, demonstrate. He just assumes it. And I think in part what is going on with the Apostle Paul and really with the whole of the Bible is simply this. If we would stop and think, if we would stop and reflect, which we don't do enough of, if you've read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, you'll know that in, I think, about the third of those letters, the senior devil encourages the junior devil to be working in the consciousness, if you will, of his patient. He calls him a patient. 
and says, the senior devil says to the junior devil, the last thing in the world that you want is for your patient to stop and begin to reflect. Because the minute he stops and begins to reflect, he's going to be cognizant of himself. And when he's cognizant of himself, and this is John Calvin, actually, before it was C.S. Lewis, as he becomes, and it's really the Bible before it was John Calvin, as he becomes cognizant of himself, he's going to begin to become cognizant of the fact that there is something outside of him. And the only thing that is adequate to explain everything that is outside of him is the infinite personal God who is really there. And if he is really there, If he's really there, he has to be good. If he's not good, he's not worthy of worship. In fact, if he's not good, crawl under a rock and hide. But you see, in his being good, it means that he must be just and righteous. And if he is just and righteous, he must deal with everything that is unjust and unrighteous. If you remember our little foray into the minor prophets, the one takeaway for me from six months of looking at the minor prophets, and only six of them at that, is simply this. There is somebody at home in the universe. And the somebody who is at home in the universe cares about what is right and is able to do something about it. And Paul's whole argument is he's going to do something about it. In fact, he is doing something about it. His wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And the particular manner in chapter 1 in which God expresses this wrath, in which this wrath is being revealed, is that God is simply giving sinful men and women over to themselves. Three times in that first chapter, he says, God gave them over, God gave them up. Mankind, all people, in their natural condition, in their natural condition, reject God, suppress the truth about God, cut themselves off from God, and God's response, his judgment upon them, the particular expression of his wrath, the revelation of his wrath against this ungodliness and unrighteousness is to give them up, give them over. Basically, God is saying, this is what you desire. You desire to find life apart from the source of life. You want to manage the universe according to your own wisdom and abilities and resources. I give you over to yourself. I give you over to yourself. Now, the thing a pastor wants to do, if he's in his right mind, is hit the pause button. You've heard me say this, but let me just say it again. Is to hit the pause button and simply ask the question, how is it working for you? How is it working, mankind? How is it working for you to be managing the universe according to your wisdom and resources? How is it working for you to cut yourself off from the source of life in order to seek life? Human history is simply one long chronology of the wreckage that results when people cut themselves off from the one true God and seek life apart from the source of life. And when he comes to chapter 2, again, all he's doing is wanting to press this home to the Jews that the same thing that is true of the Gentiles is true of them. And he goes through this sequence of things from an ethnicity to a moral code to religious practices simply to show the Jews who are listening in this congregation in Rome, the Jewish listeners, simply seeking to show them that they have a need every bit as great, every bit as deep, 
as do the Gentiles who are at the end of their noses. You know what I mean? They look down their noses at the Gentiles and think themselves superior. And what Paul is seeking to do is press home to them that they have the same need. They have the same great, great need. And Paul chronicles for them that the very things they accuse the Gentiles of doing, judge the Gentiles for doing, of those things they themselves are guilty. And we're all in the same boat, folks. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And what Paul says repeatedly through that second chapter is that, in effect, that this revelation of God's wrath as it is being revealed through chapter 1 is all leading us to a particular day, a day when God will bring his final judgment to bear on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He mentions it several times in chapter 2. He mentions it in verse 2. He mentions it in verse 11, verses 10 and 11, he mentions it in verse 17, verse 16, this day of wrath to which all of history, toward which all of history is moving. So the Jew then naturally asks the question, well, if there's no difference between us and the Gentiles, if we're all in the same boat, if we're all, uh, you know, it's like we're we're all fish in the same ocean, there's no distinction, we're all in this great need, what difference does it make that I'm a Jew? Where's the advantage? Where's the benefit? See, that's the the line of reasoning here in this letter so far. And that's why these questions pop up at this particular juncture. If there's no difference, if Jew and Gentile alike have the same need, then what advantage does the Jew have? Well, Paul says in verse 2, much in every way. Much in every way. You know, to translate it a little more popularly and in a little more pedestrian way, the advantage is ginormous. <laughs> the advantage is gigantic that the Jew has. Well, what is the advantage? What, what is the advantage that the Jew has? And you, you hear when Paul says in verse 2, when you hear him say, to begin with, you expect him to, to read out a long list of advantages. But here's what's so striking about this passage. If you go to chapter 9, you will see him read out, list out the advantages that come to the Jew because they are Jews. But here he just focuses on one. And really the word that's, that, that is translated here, to begin with, It can be translated first of all, or it can be translated chiefly, or it can be translated to begin with. All of those different translations pick up nuances of the word itself, and the word simply suggests to us this idea that chief and principal and at the head of the list, at the top of the mountain of all of the advantages and blessings that come to the Jews, that are special blessings to the Jews, the thing that is chief among them, first and foremost, the blessing out of which all of the other blessings flow is that they have the very words of God. They have the word of God. They have the speech of God, the oracles of God. That's what Paul is referring to here. The word of God, the words of God. And what he has in view here is the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, all 39 books. All of those things were in existence at the time of the Apostle Paul, and they had been for a handful of centuries. 
And of all of the gifts that have been given to Israel, all of the blessings that Israel enjoys and knows, and there are many, none of which in and of themselves are sufficient to save, none of which in and of themselves put you in right standing with the God who is really there. That is true. But nevertheless, these extraordinary blessings begin with this one and central extraordinary blessing, and that is the Word of God, the oracles of God. The word in the text is translated throughout the New Testament, word or words. It is logos, logoi, plural. It is the speech of God. And what Paul has in view, again, is these 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, that originate with God, that were given to his people and are given to his people for the well-being of his people. That's the principal blessing. That's the central blessing that comes from God. It's what Paul has in mind when he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. Listen to this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. This is a stunning passage. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the holy writings the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The 39 books of the Old Testament is what Paul has in mind in 2 Timothy 3. The New Testament had begun to be produced, but it wasn't codified. It wasn't completed. Paul had written some letters up to the time that he wrote 2 Timothy. The Gospels were in the process, if you will, of being put together, being written, being formed. When Paul writes to Timothy and says, these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, what is he saying? He's saying the Old Testament testifies of Jesus. It's all there, just as Jesus, when he was walking with the disciples from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. You remember that, Luke chapter 24? And they had this great Bible study that went for hours. And Jesus took them through the whole of the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets, the whole thing, and showed them in those writings the things concerning himself. The Old Testament. That's what Paul has in view, sacred writings. And this is what he says, and this is so critical for us to understand. It will raise questions perhaps for some of us. And I want to deal with some of those questions next week. There's the hook. You have to come back. Okay, I want to deal with some of those questions. But Paul goes on to say, after he says these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation, and I ought to make this comment about this. They're not only able to make you wise for salvation in its initial sense. They're not only able to make you wise about your condition and your need and what God does to provide you with a Savior. They're able to make you wise with respect to salvation comprehensively, right? Salvation is a big, big idea in the Bible, You know, people ask me if I'm saved. I say, well, I don't know how to answer that. You know what I'm saying? I was, and I am being, and I will be. I was saved. Right? I was justified. I was declared innocent on the basis of the finished work of Christ, a gift given to me by a God of grace and mercy. But there's a lot of work yet to be done. That's sanctification, this progressive 
work of God in my soul in which I'm being saved. The Old Testament scriptures, the Apostle Paul is saying, make you wise for salvation in that big comprehensive sense with Jesus at the center of it all. Now it all gets fleshed out and enlarged and made more beautiful and full and complete in the New Testament, but it's all there. It's there in seminal form and the seed germinates and begins to grow and you see stuff poking up out of the ground and all of it points in the direction of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Redeemer, king who comes to accomplish salvation for his people and then in his people both that's what he's saying now here's the thing i'm sorry i got a little sidetracked but here's the thing that paul goes on to say all scripture is breathed out by god that's second timothy 3 16 all scripture is breathed out by god that means that ultimately The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, 39 in the Old and 27 in the New, 27, 66, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, he's focusing on the Old, the 39, these originate with God. They originate with God. They are breathed out by him. That's what the word literally means. They originate with him. They come to us through the real agency of human authors, prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament. But they originate with God, and so they are God's words. They're God's words. That's what Paul has in mind in Romans 3, the oracles of God, the words of God, these 39 books. It's what Peter has in mind in both the first And second letters that he wrote in the first chapter of each of those letters. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. uh, Chapter 1, verses 16 to 21 of his second letter. He refers to the prophets making inquiry concerning the coming of the Christ to determine when he would come and and who he would be and what his appearing might look like. Where where were they inquiring? Were Were they looking at the stars? Were they just sort of casting out into space. and No, they were studying those 39 books. Those 39 books that Paul says had been entrusted to Israel. See, that's at the center. That's at the center of their blessings. That's the first of their blessings. It's, It's wonderful. It's wonderful to have a moral code. It's wonderful to have the moral code which is an expression of the one true God who is really there. It's wonderful to have circumcision, this picture, this frankly painful. I mean, aren't you glad that the sacrament isn't painful anymore? Listen, when they, when they, when they performed this sacrament in the Old Testament, it was painful. There was bloodletting. There were screams. There were shrieks. There was anguish. Why? Why? Here's why. A little sidebar. Because every time a circumcision was performed in Israel, it was a reminder that forgiveness is costly. What was circumcision? It's cutting away. It's removal. It's a picture of the removal of uncleanness. It's wonderful to have circumcision. It's wonderful to have that picture of the gospel. It's even more wonderful to have bread that's already been broken and a cup that's already been poured out. So that my body doesn't have to be broken and my blood doesn't have to be shed. Somebody else did it for me. It's great to be on this side of the cross. 
But it's wonderful to have circumstances. It's wonderful to have all of these things. The point is, you don't have a moral code. You don't have circumcision. You don't have the covenants. You don't have all of the other things that Paul eventually enumerates in chapter 9. You have none of that if you don't first have the words of God. The speech of God. Now, exactly what is it Paul is referring to here? What is he thinking about? Well, he is thinking about this great, this great, great gift, these 39 books. But we make a distinction. We make a distinction, and this is an important distinction. And if it's not a distinction you've heard before, we encourage you either literally or, or figuratively to get out a pen or a pencil or something and just make a notation of this, this distinction. The God of the Bible is a God who reveals himself. The title of the sermon is No More Darkness. Where does that come from? Well, here's where it comes from. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks into the confusion, the chaos, the disorder of human life and existence. He speaks with clarity, and when he speaks, he drives the darkness away. Happened in Genesis 1. David says in Psalm 119, it happens through the word, which is a light for your path and a lamp for your feet. God is a God who reveals himself. He he discloses himself. He makes himself known. That's what we value as Christians. That's what we value about the Bible is that it is God's disclosure of himself. But when God reveals himself, he does it in two basic ways. Two basic ways. And here are the terms. Here are the ideas that you want to keep in mind. It's the distinction made between general revelation, God's general disclosure of himself, and his special revelation, his special disclosure of himself. What is God's general revelation? Well, God's general revelation is God making himself known. He doesn't stay in the shadows. He doesn't hide, you know. He reveals himself. He discloses himself. He makes himself known. And in general revelation, he does it for all people in all places at all times. How does he do it? Well, he does it through the things that he's made. That's what Paul's referring to in chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. God is known, you see. You look at the creation around you, and you as a part of the creation look at yourself You examine yourself. That's what Lewis was getting at. That's what Calvin gets at in the first volume of the Institutes. A moment's self-reflection tells you something bigger than you has to be there to account for everything that exists. Has to. Makes no sense otherwise. God discloses himself, reveals himself. God is known by the things that he makes. That's general revelation. And you learn specific things about him. You learn that he exists and you learn what he is like from the things that he makes. David has the same idea in mind, the same thing in mind in Psalm 19. The heavens 
declare the glory of God. Hear the language of speaking here. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Day to day. Every day is pouring forth speech. The question is, do you have ears to hear it? Do you have ears to hear it? Pours forth speech. There is no speech, nor are there words, meaning... There is no place on the planet where there is language, meaning where there are human beings, right? Because words are the means by which we communicate with with each other, know each other, interact with each other. There is no place on the planet where there are words. No speech, no place where there are words, where he has failed to leave evidence of his own existence, his being and his character in the things that he has made. He speaks through what he has made. I think Psalm 139 is the same thing. It's not often referred to when people talk about general revelation, but I think it's the same thing. As David reflects upon his own constitution, his own makeup, the way he's put together, the miracle of human life and existence and consciousness. As he thinks about himself, he basically is saying, I'm not an accident. I am not an accident. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Hands greater than mine account for my existence. That's general revelation. It's God speaking at all times, in all places, to all people, through the things that he has made, making himself known in those things. But then there's special revelation. Special revelation. And special revelation is God revealing himself to a specific people in specific places and at specific times. And, and he will do it through his works. He will do it through his redemptive activity. He will do it in his creative works as well. But he will do it more specially in his redemptive works. And then he will do it in his words. Right? See, it's both his redemptive activity, the things that he does, but it's the words that come alongside that redemptive activity to explain and interpret and apply that redemptive activity, to work out the implications of that redemptive activity, so that when God delivers Israel from her bondage in Egypt, he doesn't just deliver her from their bondage in Egypt through Moses... He records the event and then begins to interpret the implications of the event. He does both. That's what the New Testament is, okay? The Gospels tell us that Jesus came. But even with the Gospels begins the business of interpreting the significance of his coming. And then when you move to the letters, that's really what's going on in the New Testament. In those letters, it's, it's, this is the significance of this. This is what it means that he came. The event and the interpretation and application and outworking of that event. That's what special revelation is. And it's entrusted to these Jews. It's entrusted to these Jews. It's given to them. It's God's special gift. Here's how you can think about the difference. The difference between general and special revelation. I don't know. This works for me. I hope it works for you. If you go to Florence, which I've had the opportunity to do with my kids a couple of years ago. If you go to Florence, you have to see. I mean, you just do. You have to see Michelangelo's David. 
people will say that it is the most majestic, remarkable, and beautiful sculpture ever created. So when you go to Florence, you have to go see Michelangelo's David. The story about it is stunning. The story of this massive nine or ten foot tall sculpture is stunning. It was a piece of stone that was left on the back lot of the studio where Michelangelo worked. And it was left back there because it was flawed. Did you know that? You want a picture of the gospel? (laughs) You know what sin does to you? It leaves you on the back lot. Flawed, disordered, useless. It's a piece of stone that Michelangelo began to work with. And what's also fascinating about Michelangelo, not only did he use this flawed piece of stone, but his approach, and his approach really for much of his life, was not an approach so much of creating something of beauty as it was a matter of discovering the beauty that is in, that is in the flawed and left on the back lot piece of stone. But here's the difference between general and special revelation. The difference is this. In general revelation, you look at the David and you marvel. You look at the David and you're staggered. And you you can't imagine the creative genius and the care and the tenderness and the patience. It took a long, long time for him to craft this piece of stone into this thing of beauty. The sheer beauty and majesty and magnitude of the thing. And you look at the thing and you think, boy, what an artist. You know, this thing didn't just fall out of the sky. Somebody made it. The creative genius. That's general revelation. Special revelation is when when you're standing there in the museum and you're looking at this piece of beauty and this this tottering man in an artist's cloak totters up next to you. He's got a long beard and he's in shabby clothes. All metaphors break down at some points, right? God doesn't totter and he's not an old man in shabby clothes with a beard, but you get the picture. He totters up next to you and he says, do you like it? Do you like it? And then he says, I'd like you to come with me to my studio. I'd like you to come and and see the drawings that I produce so that I could produce this, this thing of beauty. I'd like you to see what I imagined in my mind. I, I'd like you to know how I took this flawed piece of rock, this imperfect piece of rock, and fashioned it into this eye-popping and jaw-dropping image before you. Would you like to come with me? Would you like to come with me to my studio? Just, we can just be together. And, and I, can, I can open my heart to you. I can open my mind to you. I can show you how my mind works and I can explain to you what my thoughts are and what my plans are and how all of it unfolds so that I accomplish this thing of spectacular beauty. Would you like to come? Would you like to come? You bring, we'll get a bag lunch. We'll go to Arby's. We'll, we'll just... We'll, we'll, We'll have table fellowship together. Would you like to come? What fool would say no? 
And then, and then the artist says, what are you doing for lunch tomorrow? What are you doing for lunch tomorrow? And because here's what I'd like to talk with you about tomorrow. If you can come for lunch tomorrow, because here's what I'd like for you. I'd like for you to participate with me in my next project. I'd like to engage you to work with me. I'll open my heart to you. I'll open my mind to you. I'll show you how things work. I'll, I'll show you how beauty is really produced. I'll, I'll, and I want you, I want you to participate with me in this. I want you to partner with me. That's special revelation, folks. That is God inviting particular people in a particular place in particular time to know his mind, to know his heart, to be drawn into who and what he is and in point of fact, and this is the gospel, my friends, in point of fact, to partner with him in the prosecution of his purpose to produce a thing of such exquisite and extraordinary beauty that the angels of heaven will stand in awe. C.S. Lewis says that at this point, and there's Lewis again. I mean, he shows up all over the place. C.S. Lewis says that if we, if we were to see a glorified human being, we would be inclined to do what the angels do, bow and worship. Because a fully restored, fully glorified human being is the image of the God who made that one, the very image of Jesus Christ who has redeemed that one. And here's the marvel and the beauty and the wonder of the gospel that God not only, there's so much more to it. Please don't let the metaphor speak for the totality of it, but just hear what is going on here. God inviting us to participate with him, inviting us to know his mind, to know his heart, to see his purposes, to treasure, to cherish, to value these things, and as an aspect of that, as a part of that, to partner with him in the prosecution of his purposes. His purpose of restoration, the restoration of fallen sinful human beings like us, and the final restoration of the whole of the creation. That's what special revelation is to partner with God as he recreates something of eye-popping and jaw-dropping majesty and beauty. That, uh, my friends, is where we're headed in this next season of the year, in fact. You ask, where is special revelation especially seen? Well, it is especially seen in this next season especially seen in the incarnation, Advent and Christmas, the God of glory not remaining hidden, not slipping away into the night, not remaining unknown, but drawing near to speak, to reveal, to make himself known, and to act in our behalf as Redeemer and Savior and Lord. That is the consummation, the apex of God's special revelation. It is Jesus Christ. And that is why you will hang those lights beginning next week. That's why.
So my encouragement to us, it's a great story told about John Owen, that John Owen went to hear John Rogers preached, who was a fellow Puritan, and John Rogers preached on the value of the Scriptures, the precious gift that the Scriptures are to the people of God, this special revelation, this God disclosing his heart and his mind and his purposes to a special people. And as Owen listened to this, he was deeply convicted by his own inattention to the Scriptures. And he says that after he heard John Rogers preach, he went out and clung to the neck of his horse a quarter of an hour weeping in repentance for his failure to attend to this great gift that God has given, this word of God that God gives as a special gift to his people. My friends, don't come here, please. Don't come here to learn your Bibles. Learn your Bibles and come here. Because as we learn our Bibles and then come here, it makes my job a lot easier, and frankly, it makes your job a lot easier. Not that I'm interested in an easy job. Don't misunderstand. I want for us to prize this greatest of gifts that God has given to his church, his words entrusted to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you speak. Thank you that you don't stay in the shadows. Thank you. Then you invite us in to know your mind, to know your heart, and even to partner with you in this glorious project of the restoration of all things. Have mercy upon us. Forgive us our negligence. Stir us up to seek your mind, your heart, your will in your word. Lord, thank you that as we do that, we will be changed and you will be glorified. Hear this prayer. We make it in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. I think it's number 457, the last hymn.